Hey gang, welcome to episode 39 of the No Persinium podcast, your podcast about immersive theater and its ilk. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from Los Angeles this week on the show. This is the big one. This is the one I've been waiting for. This is the one that I am super looking forward to hearing myself. Our man in New York, Zay Amsbury, my good friend, who I am consistently jealous of all the time, because this week he got to talk with Elizabeth Corena and Janine Willett of Third Rail Projects. Those are the people who make Then She Fell. Those are the people who make The Grand Paradise, which Zay has seen and I have yet to see, but I'm addressing that very soon. And he talks to them for over an hour and we get the backstory of how the company came together is what Zay told me he did. We're going to listen to this together right now. I'm excited. Uh, But first, a few news and notes, as always. Hey, uh, if you haven't, check your inboxes, because New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco editions all went out this week. They all have amazing new shows, new information, new discoveries in them. This has been a really great year already for immersive work from the opening of the Grand Paradise to things like And the Drum here in Los Angeles to just this amazing proliferation of experiences that Albert has been discovering for us in San Francisco. All three issues up this week. Go check your inboxes if you haven't already. Um... Speaking of new, we've got new story rooms from the folks at 2-Bit Circus. You might remember Brent Bushnell was on the show a while back. Uh, They sold the concept in to Dave & Buster's. So in the Dave & Buster's in Milpitas, they've got, I believe it's called Space Team in Space, a comedy-themed story room. They call it a story room. We also think of those as escape rooms, but the basic idea is the same. You have a limited amount of time to solve the puzzles and complete the adventure. So there's one up at the Dave & Buster's in Milpitas now. They're testing a brand new room called Nova Outpost. They are starting the signups for that here in LA. I believe that's at their own space. Uh, You can look up the the newsletter here in LA and see it. And uh, what else is there? What else is new? Uh, The Medium Collection. Uh, Zay and I have been writing a lot lately. Uh, We went from barely doing it to there's been a bunch. I put up a review of And the Drum. Uh, Zay has a review of The Grand Paradise. Zay also did a great piece about um, whether or not, you know, spoilers are something you can really do in immersive, sort of touching on some of those ideas. And I did a piece about how immersive uh, isn't just a buzzword. How it's really, it's, it's an art form. We're biased. Of course we are. That's the way that goes. But if you don't check out the stuff we do at Medium on the regular, go to medium.com slash no dash proscenium. We collect all of the material there. If you would like to write as part of it, uh, the fair warning, we do this for love. So we're not getting paid as part of it. There's no ads on it. You know, the only money that comes in is that Patreon, patreon.com slash no proscenium. And at present, we're not clearing enough to pay writers on the regular uh, at some point. I would like us to be doing that. Uh, But like I said, if you want to write for us, hey, 
the door is open. Uh, if you want to find someone who pays to write for you, uh, for you to write for, I completely understand. I want to find that too. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, that's enough of that. Those are the announcements. Uh, this is going to be a big one. So let's get to the show. And without further ado, here is Zay. Uh, hello, this is Zay Amsbury with No Proscenium, and I am sitting um, in a part of the actual set for um, for Then She Fell, and I'm here with Elizabeth Karina and Janine Willett. Uh, Janine Willett is a founding member and artistic director and uh, performer with Then She Fell, and Elizabeth Karina is the managing director. Managing director, yeah. Managing director, also currently performing in The Grand Paradise, which is running, which just got extended, yeah? Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. I have many friends who will be very, very happy. They were all like, I want to come, but I can't make it till April. What am I going to do? Yes. Yeah. Now's their time. Yeah. <laughs> so I think what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about the history of Third Rail Projects and then move into talking about Then She Fell. And I think we'll... At some point, we'll say we're going to move into spoilers for Then She Fell. Um, and if you haven't seen it, um, you may want to wait until you have seen it. Um, although if you live in New York and you're listening to this, you've probably seen it. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, and uh, and we, I think we're probably going to hold off. Um, I don't know, I'm, I'm talking to the mic as if it's a person sitting there. Um, I think we'll probably hold off on The Grand Paradise for, for, a, later, for a later conversation. Sure. So, so Janine, so your, your background is dance, correct? Yep. So how did you get into dance? Oh, uh... That's how far back we're going. Boy, that's really (laughs) far back. So, um, I started dancing as a a kid, but I actually came, uh, to decide that I wanted to dance forever, uh, much later in high school. And so I, I sort of... Uh, studied, you know, jazz and was a majorette and, and was really fascinated by performing. But um, but it wasn't until, you know, probably when I was around 16 that I started taking ballet and I sort of realized that I, if I really wanted to dance, maybe I should learn how to dance <laughs> and have some sort of like technique. So I started taking ballet class uh, with this really lovely teacher who just kind of took me in the fold and let me start with nine-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And uh, her name is Kathy Halbert, and she, you know, let me kind of start working six days a week at her studio, and and sort of caught me up. And at that point, you know, prior to that, I was supposed to go to Kent State for architecture. My dad had already outlined; he was my guidance counselor, and so he had that's, outlined my life. That's a good marriage, though, dance and architecture. Yeah. That's <laughs> it's good. true. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing, really. Yeah. Um, so. Sometime around my junior year, I, I went to his office and I was like, you know, Dad, I, I just want to tell you, I don't, I don't really want to be an architect because I can't imagine a day in my life where I'm not dancing. And he was like, all right, make an appointment and come back tomorrow. <laughs> so so, <laughs> so I, I came back and at that time, this was, you know, Boardman, Ohio, and this is like in the Midwest. And the the dance that we understood there was, you know, it was ballet, tap, and jazz, and, and modern dance. That I didn't really know what that was. And I had seen maybe one thing, and everybody was a tree on the stage. And, like, that was what we thought modern dance was. And we hmm. had no idea what the rest of the, the, the sort of the full spectrum of what the modern dance world was. So my dad invited me in the office, and he said, you know what? I looked through all these books, and there's something called modern dance. And there's something called ballet. And then there's a school for musical theater. 
It's like, so whatever you're going to do, I'll support it, but you need to get a degree. And you're not going to go to New York and move with your sister and just bartend or, or wait tables for the rest of your life, so I'll back you up. So, so we found a dance department, and um, lo and behold, ironically, Ohio State has the number two modern dance department. And had I chosen to go there, it would have been a really different path, and it would have been quite amazing, and it would have been a state school. But I, I nevertheless ended up uh, going into a, a program that was a little more musical theater and jazz-based, um, and then later going to graduate school and going to Florida State. And that's where I met Tom, uh, Tom Pearson, who's one of the other co-directors um, of the company, so so that was really a good thing that I ended up in Florida. <laughs> so. so, well, I ask I ask for a specific reason because one of the strange things about this thing that people call immersive theater is that it's a convergent art form. So mm -hmm. you have people doing it who come from the fine arts, from political activism, from mm -hmm. straight up theater. I mean, I mean, early I've seen woodshed productions that were scripted by people I know who have like discrete scenes and it really feels like a play that you sort of have to put together um, and punch run comes from theater even though the feel of um, of sleep no more may not feel like you're watching a play whereas then she fell to me definitely feels like dance I mean there there are a lot of different elements to it but you can sort of feel that that background you know that it's coming from so so you mentioned Tom. So uh, the real project started around when, so at some point you meet Tom. Mm -hmm. Tell me that, tell me about okay. this. Okay, so, so I met Tom in graduate school. He was an undergrad and he was a theater major and he was sort of you know, involved in the dance department. He was the stage manager for my master's thesis concert. And we danced together in um, kind of a university repertory company called uh, DRT, it was Dance Repertory Theater, and it was an auditioned company that uh, would tour and do different types of um, performances and, you know, for schools, and we also did like our own concert season. It was in-house in Florida State. And so he and I danced together uh, for two years in that company, and that's how we got to know each other. And then I graduated and I moved to Eastern Europe for three years, and he moved to New York and he got his master's in performance studies at Tisch. And then when I moved back to New York, I somehow our paths crossed and, and he said, you know, I'm, I got this gig to do a piece at the Bridge for Dance and I need some dancers. And you know, it's a piece I made at Florida State and would you be up for being a part of it? And I was like, sure, okay. And so, so that was kind of like one of the first moments that, um, I danced in his work, I forget what it was called, maybe Ascending Silence, does that sound familiar? Um, and it was a very glam type piece, and he even made the dresses for it, these long black dresses. And um, and I think that somehow he got Anna Kisselgoff to come see that. And I forget what her quote was, I think we used it forever, it was some mm. like three words. <laughs> like, but, but you know, it was like one of those first moments where he just invited her to come see her work. and like, it was it was pretty amazing, so um, that might be wrong. We should fact check that. <laughs> was, it, was it that because sure we did that. another show there, and that and uh, I think it might have been the next year we did another another show. It was kind of like a part of a, a bigger collection of works by young choreographers. You know, we'll so. we'll put it in the notes. Okay, put it in the notes because yeah. I'm not really sure, but I know I know it was there, and I know she was there at something. Was that the one where he got him one of his favorite quotes, which was unwatchable? 
Oh, was that one? Oh, this, I hope that wasn't. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think that was her, but oh, that is one of the Tom's favorite quotes. Oh yeah, yeah. She yeah. No, I feel like it was filled with unusual psychic static or something. There was something oh, we had as a quote. I think we still forever. use that. Yeah, it was. It was something. But you know what was um, what was great was that you know right from the get go, Tom worked in marketing and publicity for. Um, uh, DTW. Yep. And so, you know, and he just was very bold about inviting the press and like putting out a press release, going through all the steps. Hmm. And it, it worked. Like even back then. So, um, yeah, in 2005, we did a piece called Screaming Shrubbery. And he got us a caricature in The New Yorker. Someone came and drew wow. a caricature of us wearing these crazy topiary heads. It's funny, I get myself drawn in The New Yorker and I have a, a plant on my head <laughs> in the picture. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. But like, we had no business getting that. Like, mm-hmm. but, but he did land it, so that was really funny. But, so Tom and I, so, so we and, started making and, work. I'm sorry, so yeah. at this point, are you, all, are you already starting to do site-specific work? Mm-mm. Okay. Not really. No. So, so I moved back in like 2000. Yeah, 2000. This happened around 2001. And at that time, there was another really, really dear friend, Brian Weaver, who I had gone to graduate school with. And he and I met each other in the audition for Florida State. His name's Weaver, mine's Willette, and he was in front of me in the ballet bar. And I copied him the entire time. <laughs> um, so, uh, so from that moment, we walked out of that audition, and we were, were fast friends. And so when I moved back to New York, Brian was here too, and he had also made work with Tom. He made a piece called Through the Keyhole. And so the three of us, you know, we were already kind of talking about trying to make work together. And I had come back, and I had been dancing with a really fierce Polish contemporary dance company. And I came back, and I was really kind of lost and auditioning, but auditioning for things I didn't even want to get. Um, it, it was just very hard. To find. I wanted to make my own things, but it was like audition after audition, which is really disheartening. And I was, you know, just kind of trying to find what I was going to do in New York. And, and at that time, Tom and Brian and I kind of had a conversation. We were like, well, we all want to make our own work and we like to dance for each other. And we have other friends that we know from school that we could bring in and, and who would be interested in, in rehearsing with us. So why don't we just produce our own concert and we'll pool our resources. And now, I'm, I'm, I'm curious when you say we like to dance for each other. Mm-hmm. So so you're saying that you enjoyed um, being choreographed by one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what was it about Tom's choreography or um, or your choreography of Tom that that you enjoyed? I just... I. I love the way that he sees art and sees dance. You know, I, I think I always had loved that from the time that I knew him in graduate school. And it was just really lovely to work with a choreographer who um, you're helping them realize their vision, but you're also like an artist within that. And there's just like a space, you know, it's like working for your friends is really lovely. And working for a choreographer that you respect and you trust and you really want to do a good job for them. They push you to, to sort of really, you know, go outside of your comfort zone and you're kind of in a safe place and you're making all the rules yourself. Like it was kind of this ideal place of like, if we're going to work together, we're going to work in an environment where we're with friends, we enjoy it and we are furthering ourselves and our, and our you know, artistic practice together. Mm-hmm. So, 
so that was kind of how we came together and it was really a conversation and at that time so we knew Zach and Zach and Tom were had met and they were dating and this was probably around 2002-2003 and Zach was coming in as an outside eye and at that time Brian and Tom and I decided to kind of call our company Third Rail Dance and we, we weren't really incorporated yet officially, but mm-hmm. we decided that as a group, it's easier to sort of fundraise and to get your name out there and to market your work when you're sort of an entity rather than three individual choreographers. Mm-hmm. So we, we produced two concerts together. Um, it was like 2001 and 2002, I think, or maybe it was 2002 and 2003. And we, we rented the Merce Cunningham space mm-hmm. and uh, ran for like a full weekend. They were both full weekends. And they, they were kind of... Um, kind of repertory type concerts. So they didn't necessarily have a unifying theme. Mm-hmm. We were each making work that, you know, pieces that we wanted to to, uh, to explore and then we put them together on the same program so that it would run like about an hour and a half or something like that. And um, so, so at that time, I guess it was around 2003 that uh, Brian decided he wanted to go to Italy and um, he had studied Italian and, and, you know, had always wanted to spend some time there. And so he did. And at that time, Zach stepped in and Brian, you know, decided he didn't really want to come back to the States. And he's now living in Milan. And, and that's, so, that's totally fair. Milan is lovely. Yeah. <laughs> he, he wanted to stay. And he kind of said, you know, if you want to keep running with this thing we've started, go with it. And I, you have my blessings to run with it and do anything that you want. And... So at that time, Zach had already been coming, and he was an amazing outside eye. Like, he would kind of come in and give feedback. And, and what's Zach's background? So he has a, a um, degree in directing from Carnegie Mellon. Okay. But he also, like me, kind of came into dance a little bit later and just was really fascinated with storytelling with the body and um, with choreography and, and using dance as a part mm-hmm. of his work. So... So there was already like a connection there, but he came with a very different eye of staging. You mm-hmm. know, he would kind of come in sometimes and turn things upside down. Like I remember one time in Walking in Two, he came in and he was like, well, the piece will really work, but you just need to turn the whole thing around. So the audience needs to be in chairs on the stage and you need to play to the empty audience. And we were like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and so we did in like one day and we reorganized the whole thing and it just clicked hmm. so so he's kind of the crazy maker who would come in and be like well this is really going somewhere but what I really think you want to do is this I'm going to turn it upside down and I'm going to make your head explode and you're going to get over it you're going to do what I'm telling you and then it's going to really work <laughs> and like and so we would kind of you know go through that practice with him so so it just felt really natural that Zach would kind of take Brian's place mm-hmm. and the three mm-hmm. of us collaborated for the first time like all together in 2005 and that's when we did Screaming Shrubbery and uh, we made a full-length piece that was about two hours long Mm -hmm. and it it had everything in it like I was singing which I should probably never ever do again (laughs) (laughs) I was like singing in a really long black gown with creeping people in tutus underneath it that would like run out of my skirt and it was it was a crazy funny piece where we played like a thousand characters or something. We would like you know run on you know as one person and run off and put a new wig on and you were somebody else. And so we kind of had made this this piece about 
Eleanor Gasly Pants and, and her engagement party at this big um, estate, and and we played all the guests at the estate. And it was it was really silly, but it had dance and text and song and um, and I think that was one of the one of the things you you came to see. It was the first thing I ever was that saw. The... By <laughs> oh, you should talk about. That. Oh my god, okay, I could talk about it. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I, want to, I want to hear you say this. Um, were, were, you, are, or were you someone who's, who saw theater or dance or performance? or? Sure, yes. yes. Okay. I went to school for acting okay. uh, for theater at, at Fordham University. Okay. And um, <clears throat> I had been friends with Zach Tav and Janine uh, for a few years at that point and sort of you know, knew, knew that you guys were performers and choreographers and involved in dance and dance just felt like something that was very foreign to me and very not what I did and um you know great that you guys are doing that that's great <laughs> and, and then um I uh, my boyfriend and I who who's how I met um Zach and Tom he went to college with Zach um we went to see Screaming Strawberry which I thought was the funniest name of a piece of theater and it was just the most brilliant thing I had probably ever seen on stage. I mean, it was so funny and original and weird and used so many different kinds of media and it was so inventive. And I remember sitting there, I can see, I can see myself seeing it now. Uh, I remember sitting there watching it and thinking, oh my God, this is the work I want to do. This is it. And I, at that point I had been out of school a few years and I hadn't done any theater and hated the whole world and refused to audition and basically had resigned myself to never perform again and, uh, and just work behind a desk the rest of my life. And I remember seeing it and thinking, oh my God, this is it. This is the work I want to do. So no, well, wait, so I'm, so I'm curious. So, so there was, um, it was funny mm-hmm. and it used a lot of different um, types of performance. Mm. It, can, can you zero in on what it was that drew you to the work and drew you to this group? Well, um, there was something very dark about it, even though it was laugh out loud funny, there was something underneath it that was just very human and very dark and um, uh, and and light in all of the ways that that good theater is. And um, I just I loved that it was it was deep, even though uh, it was like sort of this take on like an Edward Gorey mm-hmm. picture, basically. Um, there was a real depth to the work and I, this is coming from somebody who had gone to theater school and I understood movement, but I didn't really understand dance. I had no, I, I didn't have any, um, perspective on dance. So I was just sort of like watching everybody move around, but there was something about the piece put together that communicated, um, something, uh, just very original and very, it, 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 it spoke to me. And it, even though it was something that I didn't normally watch on stage, um, I just thought it was genius. It was, I just was watching, actually, I, I'll send you the link. I was watching uh, the trailer for it because somebody had asked me to send them clips of past work, and I I didn't know where to find those, so I searched Vimeo, mm-hmm. and I found Screaming Shrubbery, and it's very <laughs> funny. Um, I think that you know prior to that, the works, that, at least what I was making, um, were very much... Uh, Right word. They the stories I was telling were sometimes just a really succinct idea or feeling. Like I really 
had always shied away from narrative. I, you know, I had kind of come from, you know, a master's in choreography and performance and, and kind of in a camp of, of studying postmodern dance. I did my master's thesis on Judson Church and I kind of was like looking at dance in a very abstract way and had just never really thought about how contemporary dance could have a narrative or perhaps a non-linear narrative or how, how far it could really go to tell a story. Mm-hmm. I had kind of always perceive storytelling and dance as what lies in the ballet world and maybe Mm. that was my subconscious but I just kind of that was just the pieces I I were making they were really coming from a very personal relatable place but they didn't really have something that was a story that you could walk away with. A lot of that postmodern dance work is really fighting against the narrative tradition mm-hmm. hard yeah, well, for a good was, reason at that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there was, there was a, you know, when I was studying there, you know, my thesis covered every single thing from Steve Paxton eating the apple on stage and everything that Simone Forti did and every single piece and, and how important it was at that time for Robert Dunn's choreography class to basically go against everything that Louis Horst had written in that book. <laughs> you know, like, so, so it was kind of an important thing to kind of break all the rules so that you can break them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that in, in my practice, I had kind of like been going with that. And then maybe sometimes, you know, once you've broken all the rules, you don't necessarily have to keep breaking them. Right. Or you just figure out what works for you or what well, you want to say as an artist. And there are sitting around on the ground that you can pick up and figure yeah. out what you want to build mm-hmm. with them. Totally. So I, I think... I think Screaming Shrubbery was, was just, it was like a really great experience of realizing that we can tell a story, we can be irreverent, we can be so funny, we can use anything we want, and we can sing, we can write songs, it doesn't matter if they're bad, <laughs> you know, we just kind of did whatever the hell we wanted, and um, and it really worked, and it was also really fun, and it was very dark, like Edward Gorey was the, the sort of nugget that we started with, and it had a darkness, but it also was a love story. Mm. So it was like there was a sadness underneath all the laughing, and um, well, and there all, was a all lot good of good love stories have to be a little dark. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there was a lot of dance and movement mm-hmm. in it. Like, and, and Tom and Zach and I were all dancing in it, and that was really fun. And Marissa was in that dancing with us too, and and Josh Matthews, who who later came back and he played the Hatter, and then she fell mm. for a while. He lives in Chicago now, and so you know, so we had like a really. Um, it's like a kind of a breakthrough. I remember after Screaming Shrubbery, we were out in the village, and my dad turned to me and he's like, you know, Janine, it's not that I don't like all the things you've made thus far, but when you and Tom and Zach get together and put your heads together, you guys work really well together. And three heads might be better than one. <laughs> I, love, I love your dad's role in this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Chuck keeps coming around. <laughs> he does. He's, you know, he's got, he's got really good advice that comes in all different ways. But he was, you know, he was, um, he was really onto something because somehow the things that the three of us, when you put our brains together, would come out with really interesting things. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So let's, let's zoom. I'm going to take us to, so talk to me about how you started um, stepping outside of the stage mm-hmm. and, to, and started doing uh, the site-specific work that led to uh, mm-hmm. Then She Fell. So, so after Screaming Shrubbery, um, I got married and started to procreate. So it was kind of my procreation phase started to happen. And, uh, and, so, and her next role. Yes. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> we played the pregnant woman. Yes, for like years. Like, 
<laughs> so, um, so after that, um, I think, I'm not sure which one came first. I'm pretty sure it was the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council. So when I was pregnant with my son, uh, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I was in the process of getting pregnant and getting married. I don't know. Something was happening there. But, but Tom, uh, got this opportunity from the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council to use a space downtown to rehearse. And they asked him if he could have a place, like if he could put one of his works in, um, in any space, what would it be? That's kind of a pretty Any space exciting. in Lower Manhattan? Yeah. yeah. And he, so, so Tom is part Cherokee and had spent a lot of time exploring his um, heritage and, and also like very fascinated with American Indian stories and the story of his family and his grandmother and so so he came back to them and was like you know I'd, I'd love to use the rotunda at the Museum of the American Indian in the customs house and they said okay and the museum uh, partnered with him mm. and let him make this beautiful piece um, and so so that was he 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 started with that work and um, I think even though it was kind of a contained space, so I want to say that it was it wasn't a proscenium work, but the way the rotunda works is there's a wall around it, mm -hmm. and then there's these kind of big columns, right? They're mm -hmm. like a column made of brass, and then you can walk around this sort of center rotunda space, and then there's like statues, and there's like Christopher Columbus and all of the. Um, explorers kind of around the return. It's a very strange space. And this is right outside the door, which kind of takes you into the museum, mm -hmm. which is really um, contradictory. Um, so Tom really started to explore, like, what does it mean if, if you have a conversation with Columbus? And at the same time, you transform that space into a dream catcher. And mm -hmm. so so that was, um, that was a really great exploration for him. And, and I think he really embraced what it meant to step outside of a stage and to have architecture to work in and the history of a space to work in and all of this other fodder for research that that creates another rich aspect of your work and, and sort of balances it so um so after that um zach was was also offered an opportunity to make a piece of the south street seaport and that one i i was there carrying the baby on me watching the show <laughs> Um, and so that was kind of another opportunity and that that piece actually was non-confined so that was an example of where like the performers landed in a public space mm -hmm. and life is happening in that space and, and you're sort of inhabiting that space so Marissa was a mermaid and she flip-flopped all the way from what is that street water street yeah. that's in front all the yeah, way to the water, water. She flip flops. Yes, yes. <laughs> like rolling. with a big tail. Yeah, yeah. Cobblestones, the whole thing. Wow. You still have that tail, don't you? Yeah, well, then it, it made another appearance yes, with you guys yes. in the Winter Garden. And um, yeah, but she, she, so that was kind of an experience of like what it means to put your art in a public space that's active with a tenancy. And you're kind of blending in. So, you know, the seaport at that time, well, depending on what time of day you have people who worked down there for business, lots and lots of tourists mm -hmm. at that time were visiting the retail stores. You have people coming from Wall Street for happy hour. Um, what else? Who else is down there? You probably have nannies from the area. Mm -hmm. There's not yeah, that much house there. Residents. A lot of tourists. So, so there, there's a pretty bustling environment. And at one point, Marissa was, you know, part of her role was to sit 
as a mermaid on this bench and she would just kind of sit there for like a little bit of time before she would start this journey to the water and this this guy selling his sunglasses called the police it was like there's a mermaid destroying my business and like, <laughs> so so fitting into the landscape mm-hmm. and figuring out how like how to interface with the audience when they're right there mm-hmm. and and sort of how do they react to you and how do they necessarily know that it's a show and you're not just a person who's dressed like a mermaid because it could happen in New York <laughs> and like so, so it was kind of like a really great learning experience from another aspect, whereas the rotunda had been kind of a more, you know, it's a security type building where, you know, you came there to see the performance. You weren't just necessarily landing. Maybe some people who were going to the museum would kind of land on the performance unexpectedly, but mm-hmm. a lot of people were going there as a destination to see the performance. Uh, whereas the, the seaport, it, it just kind of happened. Mm-hmm. and. Um, some people were there to watch and others just happened to be there and, and be in the middle of it. So that was kind of two, two places where I think that Tom and Zach were really getting excited about what it means to take our work outside and rather than try to sell tickets and bring people to us, just bringing it out to the world yeah. and landing in places and, and letting, letting audiences come to us, which was kind of a fascinating shift in how you know how we started to make work and how we started to to see you know the possibility of people becoming very engaged in modern dance mm-hmm. who probably wouldn't buy a ticket to see our show yeah. at the Cunningham space but there they are in the middle and and they start to like it yeah well, now at what point did you transition from third rail dance to third rail projects just have our LLC mm-hmm. um, our birthday our was birthday this was past like sun, Sunday ten, mm-hmm. is it ten years maybe? no it's no, eight, eight years eight years okay <laughs> I'm glad you know <laughs> so so we so that puts us around 2008 so so I guess all these things have been happening I had my son and then um, around 2008 I think we decided that we had switched our names to third rail projects kind of Earlier on, like it might have even been around the time of Screaming Shrubbery. It was, yeah. but it was for a while. It was Third Wheel Projects and Productions. Oh yeah, we, we just couldn't <laughs> land on anything. Very verbose. It was like it could be one or the other. Yeah, just, it could be anything. I think the point was we realized that we were making all kinds of things: art installations and haunted houses and and film. And it, we didn't really feel like dance quite mm-hmm. fit with what we were everything. doing because there were so many things. Um, and also at that time, I felt there was a little bit of like, if you asked us to do something, we would do anything. Like we were just kind of open to like all kinds of things, and we weren't really necessarily only coming at every project through one aspect. Of and our and work. it does. I mean, as you say, there people have a lot of resistance to going to see dance. I mean, it seems like just like a very specialized thing that you probably want to mm-hmm. enjoy or understand. When really, it, it can be as populist as anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And well, it was. It's interesting to see how I think we've folded audience in, we used to laugh and call it booby-trapping the audience, but <laughs> like our haunted house, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I think at, the, at the, um, the Winter Garden, so after, I think we had done a few more things in, in between where uh, Tom did uh, Lacuna, right, mm-hmm. at um, Lincoln, Center. Lincoln Center in this big fountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the fountain? They were going to renovate it, so they drained it, and he was able to put a piece in, inside the fountain. Mm-hmm. And then we were commissioned to use uh, to do a piece at um, St. Mark's Church, mm-hmm. and we decided to treat that space as a church mm-hmm. and to make a piece that was a funeral. 
hmm. in the church, and then we would carry the coffin out to the cemetery next to the church. And so, like, it was around 2008, I think. Okay. And I, I was pregnant with my daughter then, but I danced in that performance. And um, I think that was probably the first time I had come back in between mm-hmm. kids. I was mm-hmm. performing in that. Or no, we did Rub the Sleep. So I did. we did, like, one proscenium yes. work in between. Now, Elizabeth, when um, did you join the company as a... As a um, when did you join the company? In <laughs> yeah. what capacity? Um, yeah, well, I, it's a little bit tricky. Um, I... I guess I joined in 2000, early 2007. Okay. Um, but really, the only reason why I came in mm-hmm. was because Zach Tom Janine had started talking about, we have this third rail projects and productions thing. It's not an official company, but we're starting to think that maybe it should be, or maybe mm-hmm. it should be a nonprofit, but we don't know. And because I was a friend of theirs and I'd worked in arts administration for years, I see. they... Uh, you were you were at home with your baby at that point, but um, uh, Zach and Tom said, "Can we just take you out for dinner and like ask you some questions and and maybe you can give us a hand?" And I had like literally nothing else going on at the time, uh, and so I was like, "Sure." <laughs> and so um, we went out for dinner. I remember um, we went to that uh, amazing Indian place on First Avenue called Milan. One of the one has like a thousand <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, wow. Christmas lights everywhere. Oh, and Milan makes a return appearance. Exactly. It's spelled a little differently. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, anyway, I have a really strong memory of sitting at that table with them um, and talking about just like, oh, sure, like I I have extra time. I love you guys. I love what you do. And yeah, I'll help you out. So I just sort of helped on an administrative level to sort of like get the company into to get some order um, mm-hmm. and to start setting them up so that um, at first we thought that we would form the company as a nonprofit and then we discovered that that was a bad idea for a number of reasons and so we decided to incorporate it as an LLC mm-hmm. and so we started the ball rolling with that which eventually happened about a year later in early 2008. Um, but then in sort of maybe like middle of 2007 after maybe six months of working for you guys um, we got a commission from the Hong Kong Youth Arts yeah. Foundation to uh, create a site-specific piece during a festival there. And I came to a rehearsal. You guys knew I was a musician, and I came mm-hmm. to a rehearsal. Um, I was just sort of asked to, like, sing during the rehearsal, because <laughs> why not? Yeah. And so I did that, and it was fun. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm getting to, like, look at me using my degree. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> And then you guys just sort of like looked at me and were like, hey, do you want to come to Hong Kong for a week and make a piece? And I was like, you guys, I don't dance. That's really weird. No, that would be weird. And they were like, we don't care. Just come and we'll, you'll sing in it or something. And I was like, okay. And so then I got on the plane. And then I got there and you said, okay, now put on your dance clothes and start dancing. I was like, I don't, I don't do that. And is that what happened? Yes. And how was that? Um, terrifying mm-hmm. and, and great. And... Um, I actually remember feeling really <laughs> hysterical about it because I didn't bring any clothes. I didn't bring warm-up clothes or like sweatpants or anything. I just showed up and I was told I would be put in a costume and I would da- I would sing. And so we got to the first rehearsal and everybody gets there and starts changing. And I was like, I don't have anything with me. <laughs> I had to go buy sweatpants like at a street market in Hong Kong. <laughs> know that because yes. I was, I had a baby at that time I was I was in New Jersey I didn't get to come yeah <laughs> I, I remember that very strongly and that really like speaks to my part of that experience of like I was just not prepared mm-hmm. but ultimately they just 
they just told me to do things and I did things and they said, great, or do this instead. Or (laughs) then we made a piece and it felt so, um, it felt so, uh, satisfying in that I really felt like I had, um, I could start thinking creatively again. Mm -hmm. And, and I also felt like I somehow had a place there, even though I didn't come from a dance background, I felt like they saw value in what I do, whatever that is, and I was able to bring that to the team. And it was that was not something that I expected, and and then I just never left. <laughs> we just won't ever left. We let you leave. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, yes. All right, I'm going to zoom forward mm-hmm. again to um, to the the series of pieces that led up to then she fell. I mean, yeah. actually, mm-hmm. wait. I think I'm, I'm more specific. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, I read in an interview you saying that you had worked for over a year on what eventually became Then She Fell. It was like two, oh, years. Yes. two years. Much longer than that. It was two that. years. Okay. Um, so talk to me a little so, about that. So along this whole path of site-specific uh, work, we um, developed a relationship with Arts Brookfield. So Brookfield Properties is a, a real estate company that owns uh, the World Financial Center and... Um, the uh, One New York Plaza, the Bank of America Plaza in LA. There, so we developed a relationship with them, and I think it was it was starting in two thousand and nine mm-hmm. when uh, when we were commissioned to do a, a site work that would last every lunch hour for three weeks. And Lizzie, you were part of that mm-hmm. one. Uh, there's great pictures of Lizzie inside of like these. Uh, plastic cubes like in you know business clothes trapped inside and she was also all over the these led screens all over the entire oh, yeah, we made a, bunch, a series of videos too yeah, it wow. was, um so so that that project went really really well and the next year they invited us to come back and uh to do that again for mm-hmm. two weeks and we also were able to do an exhibit inside their gallery space so the the performance aspect and the gallery component were sort of interlinked together mm-hmm. um, so so that was kind of a the beginning of this relationship with Brookfield and that was also the first time I had a chance to perform besides St. Mark's Church to perform truly in a public place and be a part of that from a performance standpoint and I was kind of blown away with how much fun that was mm-hmm. and how amazing it was to what have was your audience right there well there there's just this whole unknown component. You, you never know. When I was in college, you know, at, at Florida State, Linda Davis, the director of DRT that Tom and I danced with, she's, she used to always say that there would be like a series of unknowns in everything you do. And, and a lot of our performances were improv. Mm. And she would always have this thing in her pocket of like what she wouldn't tell us she would throw out at us. Mm. And it could be anything. You'd be in the middle of, you know, something on stage and be like, Janine, tell us about your favorite chocolate dessert. And, you, know, you never knew what she was going to do. <laughs> Um, so, so that was kind of what, what came to mind was that you really don't know what's going to happen because you cannot control what the audience response will be to what your performance is. And you can have all these really great plans of what you think your performance is going to be. And then a tour group just might walk through the space of like 200 people and you have to kind of figure out how you're going to adjust and, and, and it was just the, the, the excitement in performing in that environment and the proximity to people and the closeness and the intimacy, even if some of them were paying attention to you and some of them did not want to acknowledge that you exist because they were afraid that you might bite them, uh, 
it was fascinating. Like it was, it was a really great time. So, so around that time, um, so after that, that project, Brookfield came back to us and said, um, we have this empty flower shop in one year at Plaza in, in the, uh, basement level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would you like to use it? And maybe you can do some kind of art installation for the tenancy in, in return for using the space. Mm -hmm. So we were like, okay, great. And Zach had this amazing idea. He, um, he wanted to do something called a series of reveals where the windows were painted black and you could etch out this tiny hole and then the tenancy could come and look in the hole and every week the installation would grow in depth until it was the entire depth of the space. And the hole, cool. would, the hole would grow. And the hole would grow. Uh. So, so he started building this, and, and they, they loved the idea. They invited us into the space, gave it to us. We moved in all of our stuff, because <laughs> we don't travel light, and <laughs> we collect a lot of things. And he started to make this beautiful Alice in Wonderland immersive installation that you know you could see growing, and it had sort of like the chessboard floor and, and the and floor. And how did Alice in Wonderland come up? Was it something that he's always been interested in? Or? I think, he, I think, I think he'd wanted to make a, a, yeah. a piece about it for a very long time. Yeah. Okay. Didn't he write a book? Yeah, yeah, he wrote. You had to say that. I don't, I don't know. Okay. I've never read I it. I, I feel like he wrote a book that was Alice in Wonderland themed. Like a million years like ago. Like a million years ago. Like a, a, a work of fiction? I think so. Yeah. I don't know. So super into Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he uh, yeah, but not necessarily like a, a super into Alice in Wonderland person. I think he okay. he was very intrigued by Lewis Carroll himself, very intrigued by the story of Lewis yes, Carroll and Alice. So like Little. the circle details mm -hmm. surrounding Charles yeah. Dodds. Yeah, yeah, he's very intrigued by the mystery that surrounds yeah. the books um, and the books themselves and the worlds in there. But it wasn't so much the books. Yeah, uh, uh, by themselves. It's it. I mean, it's interesting because I. Um, I I was I was I wasn't interested in seeing. Then she fell, but partially because I mean I feel like it's hard to get through, like being in a theater department in college and not having seen a wacky production of Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> True. There's so many out there. <laughs> True. And I was like, really? Again, that's what they're doing. And then my 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 girlfriend at the time uh, surprised me by taking me to see Sleep No More. Mm. And so later, when her birthday came up, I was like, oh, well, I'll, I'll take her to see this. I'm sure she'll like it. Um, and then, I mean, when you were talking about Screaming Shrubbery, to talk about, about the darkness, you know, the darkness that lives below the, the, the humor, the darkness that lives below, like, uh, a, a love story. Mm -hmm. And this, like, rips open this. I mean, it's, it's already dark. It's already in there. Yes. But it rips open this profoundly dark context and then just goes at it in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think Tom and Zach, we, we were talking the other day and Tom brought up how actually the Alice in Wonderland thought had come up in Hong Kong during, oh, like during one mm. of their um, experiences there. I think it might have been one that was later huh. when they went back to do The One You Love is Sick. Mm. Tom and Zach had gone back and had an, an opportunity yep, to, to, uh, to do another site work with local performers. Mm -hmm. oh. and, and they were sitting up on the top of a mountain with, uh, with a friend that they had met there and talking about Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland and, and the idea had come up that there is something iconic about Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass that people understand the context, even if you don't remember the books, yep. or even if you never finished the books. There's mm -hmm. just this thing that you know, it's so iconic. Mm -hmm. 
And that kind of was something that resonated with them. And that might have been the spark, mm -hmm. I think, that, that sort of stemmed into a series of reveals. And then subsequently, Arts Brookfield offered us a... a well, wasn't a, it first another, The Haunted House before the series of reveals? Mm -mm. It came last. Really? Yeah, The Haunted House was the last thing. We had done two Haunted Houses. We had houses. done two Haunted Houses. Yeah, we had done... The, yeah, right, so, Alice one of them was the yeah, 2011. So we, but we did... Um, so we did... We had an opportunity to um, also make another site work for the Bank of America Plaza in L.A. Mm -hmm. And Brookfield came to us and said, hey, you know, we'd love to bring you out to L.A. for three weeks to, to make one of your pieces in this beautiful outdoor space that we have. And so we were rehearsing and we decided that we would, well, we were also rehearsing inside Zach's installation. So it was kind of like, that was really where the <laughs> that was, was born. Yeah. I mean, we were like, because we were using the space mm -hmm. as a rehearsal space. You know, in New York, you rehearse any place yeah, that you've got a space. So, so he was building his installation. And then we had this little corner of like a couch and a rug where we would sit. And we had all the biographies of Lewis Carroll. And we were all researching and coming to rehearsal to talk about these characters. And we were starting to develop kind of our toolkit that we would go to L.A. with. Like we, whenever we would go someplace and have a site work, we kind of have all this preparation that happens before you get to the site where you mm -hmm. really start to think about what that piece is going to be. And we started to explore these characters and start started to like look at a lot of biographical material and historical material. And then we started to play around with scenes and ideas and we were inside this amazing installation, playing with the cards and ripping through the plants. and. You know, Zach was maybe not always so happy about that, but we'd put it all back together. You know? <laughs> um, and and so, so then we had this chance to go out to L.A., and at that time we did not have Lewis Carroll in the cast, mm -hmm. but we did have um, two Alices. We knew that we wanted to kind of explore what happens when you have, when you are pulled in two directions so forcefully that you actually split into two people mm -hmm. and that was kind of the, the idea that we were we were starting with and then of course Lizzie was the hatter and I was the white queen and Tori was the red queen mm -hmm. and Marissa and Tara were playing um, the Alice's and, and Tom, Tom was the white rabbit and so you so you originally had the role of the Mad Hatter mm -hmm. and what was that like I mean, how did you um, uh, engage with the development process and what sort of contributions did you bring to to the role? Well, can, I, I, can I say where we are right now? Sure. We're, we're sure. in the, called the, the hat shop. Yeah. So we're, we're sitting in the hat shop. Um, for those of you who've seen Then She Fell, you know the things that go on here. There are hats everywhere. There's a sombrero that I, I think I probably wore the, <laughs> the sombrero. I, think, I don't know. Um, that's exactly where we are. So we're, we're at home base right now. Yeah. For, or at least home base for a period of time. For some, for, for part of the show. Um, how did I, how did I be part of that? Um, well, I think that I came from a place of, of, uh, of text. I came from a history of working in theater where we, everything starts with the text and, um, uh, I, that's what I understood. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so working with dance is part of why I had this sort of like strange relationship to dance because I didn't really understand how you could tell a story with just movement. Mm -hmm. um, and so Zach, having gone to school for directing and, and mostly working with, with theater, although he also worked with dances in school, he and I, um, uh, I, I guess that we, we got each other on sort of like a, a, a 
a theater level, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to say it very, very simply. Um, and we, he told me that he, he had decided that I was going to play the Hatter. That wasn't, that wasn't a conversation. <laughs> that, that was, that's who you are. No. And that was very, at once very confusing and also very exciting to me because um, it's a fascinating character. It's an iconic character, but it's also a character that I've never thought of um, them looking like me. Hmm. Or, or that being something that is related to me. I always thought of Hatter's being an old man. Um, so I, I think that uh, Zach saw this character as being a very text-heavy character, and I imagine that's one of the reasons why he thought that I could hmm. handle it and could be could be the one to develop it because I had that background and um, because what he had in mind for that character turned out to be me in a way like in the for those of us who developed that show mm -hmm. we really just played versions of ourselves <laughs> <laughs> um which is one of the things that made it made it so special yeah um i mean i suppose that's what we always do when we create characters yeah, we, but yeah. we do that again and again yeah I think. of course um but that one uh yeah we worked very very hard on the on the text side of that and and then also because it's a third world show it, it, it was very movement heavy and mm -hmm. That was both a, an exciting challenge and um, very exhilarating for me. And a chance to have you sing again, yes. which was really great. So. Um, sorry, I, I froze because I didn't know if I should ask this question, but I'm going to anyway. Um, so what, in, in what sense do you feel like, what was the affinity for you with the character? Like the character of the Mad Hatter that ended up being developed for then she fell, you say, was very much like you or was you. Mm. What are those qualities that ended up being expressed? Well, they they are at, they are essentially very universal qualities, but mm -hmm. there there's a wide range of them, and I think I was really excited about getting to express that range. Mm -hmm. um, the Hatter is uh, an intensely lonely, sad. Um, poor character. I mean, that's the way that he's written in the book. Um, but the character is also incredibly funny and incredibly warm, incredibly gregarious. And um, uh, I loved the idea of getting to visit all of those sides of a person. I mean, because I have all of those sides and I think, I think everybody does. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and I love that the scenes that we created for the Hatter in this show, um, they really honor, I, I feel, they really honor all of those um, those feelings and those uh, the, the ways that, you know, the human experience can be, um, can be devastating and can be very um, um, exciting and uh, very satisfying and, um, it just felt like a very well-rounded role. Um, and <laughs> when uh, when he described it to me, I mean, I, th I think he said, you're going to play the Hatter. And I was like, Zach, the, the Hatter's an old man. <laughs> you, you, you want me to play an old man? <laughs> it looks like Marlena Dietrich. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was, that was the next part. And he's like, no, 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 no. You're going to play the Hatter as if it were Marlena Dietrich. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I just say no to that. Yeah. I can, yeah, I have a visual for that one. <laughs> um, yeah. Excellent. 
So, um, so what point in the in the process did you get to um, the way it would engage with an audience? Well, how did that develop? I think there were there were multiple stages to making the show. So, so we had done we had done sort of the art installation exploration that Zach was doing, and um, and then we were making this uh, what we were calling at that time was it through the looking glass or just mm. looking glass. I think it might just been Looking Glass. I forget. Looking Glass was LA. Through the oh, Looking Glass was the Haunted House. The Haunted House. Okay. So uh, we kind of kept adding words. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't really know. Title changes. But, but so when we were in LA, we, we were able to really um, think about exploring these characters on sort of their bright side. Hmm. And the, the piece that we created there was a durational experience. So the, the plaza of the Bank of America there... Um, the way it looks is like there's a circle of grass and and around it is like this sort of um, it's like a oh, what's the right word there's three waterfalls that go into sort of a sub level where offices are actually looking through the water so you're like looking down into wow. this it's space, an and space there's like a big pool with these gorgeous like gardens that are on these kind of like circular little islands in it it's huge. It sounds and, awesome. And it's yeah, a gorgeous it's park. So people come from the building uh, to, to eat their lunch and to like sort of spend time in this beautiful circular park. And then some people actually have their offices underneath looking through the waterfalls and looking up at the sky through this sort of uh, circular shape. So, so the space there, of course, the first thing we looked at was like, well, there's a pool of tears. A big one, <laughs> like so. We, we were able to get permission to be in the fountain hmm. and to have um, an Alice in the fountain while there's an Alice above, and to have this like dual image. Hmm. And so we played with this this work that I think was probably like forty minutes that mm. looped like maybe it had like three repetitions and mm-hmm. it lasted for a couple of hours. And we made our way around the park and we had our big tea table and like a suitcase filled with like. The Cups same table saucers, that we use in the, the same still. table, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, and uh, and also, well, some of the pots are probably mm-hmm. still up there, but we took all these like metal pots the and suitcase. That's the suitcase, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, and so we traveled around the park and and had like a series of scenes that would happen. And it, there really wasn't text at mm-hmm. that time. No, we didn't use any text. Yeah, public spaces. Um, it's hard to have text because sure, sure. if you're not mic'd, people can't hear you, and it's either they're straining to hear you or not hear you, mm-hmm. and it just wasn't really the medium that would work uh, very well. But we had a lot of the these sort of standoffs where we had a tea party with the Red Queen and the White Queen, and we had the mirror table set up, which would later become the mirror table of the show, where the Alices were looking through this this frame, mm-hmm. and you know the two sides were sort of set up on the tea party table. Mm-hmm. What else did we have? We had the rabbit had her fight. Oh, the rabbit had her fight, yes. and then we had the Red oh, Queen as well. and the rabbit. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then I had a lot of movement. We had like sort of a court dance that we did with the Alices, the two queens, hmm. uh, where we're sort of manipulating the Alices. I don't remember much around that. I know I had a really big white scarf, and I had a lot of children that would follow yes. me around. <laughs> yeah, they just thought like you were posse. like the queen. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember thinking I was going to die. It was so hot. And yeah, I had like was, six layers. Oh, I was just you like, had like the vest. Very, lots of layers. And I remember that Marissa had to change 
from wet clothes to dry clothes like 20 times and I had to help her. That was part of it. I had to go in this little like basement staircase off that pool and like help her change into her dry Alice clothes and she had to run out and then she would go back into her wet Alice clothes and jump in the fountain and like... Well, and, and also some of those offices that were adjacent to the fountain downstairs didn't know what was going on upstairs so they would just be working and then look over and there's this woman dressed as Alice in the fountain. I think they were probably like, um, there's so the person? Oh, okay. That would okay. be a great day, though. It was, it was <laughs> really fun. It was it really, was really fun. And uh, we had croquet set up, like, in the grass that people could just mm-hmm. play. And um, So that was, like, that was a really great exploration. We, we came away with so much choreography. Um, and relationships. And we relation- really discovered yeah. a lot about mm-hmm. the relationships that we wanted to continue to work on mm-hmm. in the show. And I think that was where a lot of the themes were starting to come out. We're what sorts of, to understand. What sorts of themes? Well, we had kind of started with that the, the Alice is breaking apart and being pulled in two different directions. But I think that we, we were really starting to look at the directions they were being pulled in and sort of what it meant to have sort of the, the red team, you know, the red queen uh, and her sort of characters that aligned with her and the white queen and the characters that aligned with her and we were starting to really think about you know the white queen is the hurricane and the, and the red queen as the tornado and and then it started to branch into you know the white queen is sort of representing freedom and mm. um, uh, lack of structure desire to do what you want and how that perhaps might not be sustainable uh, and the red queen was sort of representative of Victorian social mores and marrying well and your part in society and uh, so we were kind of playing around with these two sort of Apollonian Dionysian Mm -hmm. uh, this dichotomy that was happening and uh, so all those things were kind of becoming really apparent and and sort of the relationships like you know between the Hatter and the White Queen were just like figuring out how that relationship went and sort of how we are kind of aligning ourselves and so we took a lot of liberties with the characters too. Like the White Queen also is an old woman chasing a scarf. I mean, she really is not. Like, That's know. great though. I mean, it's um, like it's like you went through a, a process of uh, of ownership. You know, I mean, you, hmm. you took over all of these these characters that everyone's familiar with, and then made them into not into you, but you took ownership of them and hmm. then wielded them how you wanted to wield them. Yeah, it was. Yeah, nice. there's there's so much there in those books. There's so much to work with, and then yeah. I think I think we had a lot of material, but we also had the ideas that aligned well with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were able to run with with things too, and like sometimes one idea, um, like you know, we uh, well going back going back to your question about how we thought about engaging with the audience mm-hmm. from there, you know. Um, one step further, we, we came back to, to New York after L.A., and we took these characters and we put them into the steampunk haunted house. And that was the third year that we were doing a haunted house. Zach had really kind of helmed the first two years. It's so funny because I um, saw that. You saw the, I don't, the Looking Glass one? No, the, the Looking Glass? I saw a steampunk haunted house. Do you know what year? I, it must have been... Does 2010 make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Was it the audience was sort of free roaming? Yeah, very yeah, the free big roaming. Bed. It was very big bed. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I was on a weird date and I was a little drunk. So. <laughs> oh, <okay>. Fair <laughs> enough. Holding a lantern. Yeah, there was. Yeah, there were different. There were three different years, and 
each year I feel like more and more dance mm -hmm. was was kind of being incorporated into the haunted house. Okay. Um, yeah, and more more structure, or more, at least more choices as, as relates to structure. The first year was very sort of. Um, classic haunted house where you sort of are in a room and you see a thing and then you move to the next room and you see a thing and you, as a group mm -hmm. and the next thing you see a thing and they didn't necessarily you know they all had sort of things that go together because they were all out of Zach's brain but they there wasn't necessarily one cohesive story from beginning to end and the second year was the first year that we experimented with what does it mean to let the audience see whatever they want to see yeah and be free roaming we'd never done that before mm -hmm. and how do we then have one group that's in there and then another group that comes out and comes in and clear out the first group and how do we move audience around yeah yeah was a really big question for us that year and we've learned a lot of things my friend was, was talking about that the other day where he he was just there for so long he never got taken away so he just kept he like just never ushered out and his wife i think she might have gone in and been taken away right away so she never we learned everything we, yeah, we had tricky. can i say a thing about the flashlights Weren't they lanterns or something? They had different colors, but... We built these lanterns to give to the audience, and the, the idea was that they would be different colors for different groups, and so we'd be oh, able to tell who's who, but one of them was red and the other was orange. <laughs> and you couldn't really tell them apart. <laughs> 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 so, like, it's kind of orangey. I don't know. <laughs> um, and move on. <laughs> so people were, like, in a feedback loop for, like, for hours, probably, with their, like... It was a strange lantern. The batteries start to die, and then yeah. suddenly the red becomes them. And, <laughs> and as performers, we had this experience where we were like, "Okay, we're gonna oh, we're gonna do a scene here, and it's gonna start and end around this time." And you know, if the audience comes in and sees it, then it'll be whatever. You know, they can come in whenever they want. But then I hear my cue, and I'll go to the next scene. But we didn't yet know how to move in audience, and we didn't know how long it took to do that. So we we didn't take that into account. So it was like, "Oh, I gotta go!" And you're like. <laughs> <laughs> run through the whole space and be somewhere else and then run back through the whole space and we just it was a learning experience yes, we learned a lot we learned a lot about that and that well the the next year we there was sort of more of a promenade structure again mm -hmm. so when we put we well we took the same characters that we've been working with but we added lewis carroll in the haunted house mm -hmm. we didn't have lewis carroll up to that point and so um that that structure was much more of um of sort of a timed promenade mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. where the audience was kind of moving in in different intervals and and our experience we had kind of made our performance experience a little bit better so that it wasn't you weren't repeating the exact same thing yeah, like yeah. over and over and over again for four hours so you were kind of you know audience would see maybe different scenes when uh -huh. they came mm -hmm. through but you had like maybe i don't know eight different scenes right. that you could be doing and, and you would kind of what were your references them? for for work where you really have to move the audience around i mean had you had you seen other stuff like this been to haunted houses or um, um i think that zach had been to had been to haunted houses i think he was just he, i'm not sure exactly what his influences were there but he was definitely interested in different ways of moving audience uh -huh. and so those those three years really represent yeah. like three completely different um attempts yeah. um and uh well learning experiences like yeah, yeah. i said yeah like we and i think a lot of things like well when you're working in site work in public spaces there's a lot of navigating audience and navigating their movement choices and where they mm -hmm. land sort mm -hmm. of they make the landscape 
of the space and sometimes you have to adapt your choreography and your movement to be completely different in a completely different place mm -hmm. to accommodate where they are. Mm -hmm. So I think that probably some of that experience came into play. Um, but the promenade structure, I feel like he was pretty calm. He, it seemed like he sort of knew what he was doing and how to make that sort of promenade happen really with the third year. Yeah, by the third year, I, I feel think like... They, we, he had really mm -hmm. figured something out by then. I think, though, that in that haunted house, and I hadn't been in the years prior, but um, in that one, the the time that we had with audience was... Um, it wasn't about just performing and letting them watch and not paying any attention to them. Mm -hmm. It was actually we were inviting them in to mm -hmm. the experience that we were making. So it was a little bit different than the first haunted house where I felt very much like a spectator mm -hmm. going through. I wasn't really brought into it, but when we were playing here, all of the scenes were really like folding the audience right in from the get-go. Like I know I had people came down through the, um, through the audience and onto the stage and they would part the curtain and there was the tea table and that was kind of my land was the tea table mm -hmm. and this shack that people would come in through beaded, beaded curtains and come in or they would come in through the closet. I would, they would get stuffed in through a closet, remember, that came from the that audience door. Or I would mm. stuff people in that closet <laughs> and spit them back out into the seats. But but there was a lot more. Um, like, they would come on stage and I would seat them and, and invite them to be a part of my tea table. And so they were getting integrated into the scene. And then in the shack, I would sit at the table. And I think, I, I can't remember what I did. I know I, I had a cat's cradle. Hmm. And I would make handcuffs out of it. So I would make this really pretty thing and then I would offer it. And then people would always put their hands in it. And I would just pull it and suddenly they would be like this. And then I sat, sort of like halfway through, I started hanging them up. There was like this hook on the wall. And so I would just hang them in the cat's cradle. And then I would like leave. Because it only happened like one time where I was like, oh, my scenes, I, I just left. And then I came back and they were still there. And I started to play this game of like who would stay and who wouldn't. Oh Some would leave. And then the next little spot, they would turn the corner and Lizzie was there in this padded cell did you stuff people in a yeah. padded cell yeah so she stuffed people in a padded box <laughs> yeah. how big was this box it was small oh, it was big enough for a person but but barely we have pictures and of i had like a, a door that closed like this and so i would come out of it and be very gollumy and then stuff people in and close it <laughs> leave me and turn the light off <laughs> right after they had been hung by the cat right <laughs> that was really fun we, we started, I think that was a place of really like, I know I was having such a good time engaging with audience. Like it was, and of course at Halloween, it's really fun too. Like, you know, there was a place where I would come, one of my scenes, I would come running out of the shack and I would do a plank right onto the, the tea table and then I would swing back and there would be a person sitting there. And, and like, you never knew what would be there because you would only see the back of their head. So I would like come in the plank and then it'd be like a ghoul. And I'd be like, <laughs> To try not to react, or you know, it'd be like a big stuffed animal in a thong, and like, just like or or, an, or somebody dressed up as Alice. Yeah, people would dress up as Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, all the time like it was like, it was oh, so much fun. Like we had we had such a good blast. time. So I think that was like sort of a place where again we're getting like closer and closer to the mm -hmm, audience. Mm -hmm. And then I remember as we were we we sort of did a mock up of Then She Fell. We had no content. We just had an idea, and we invited people like eight people at a time. <laughs> We had no content. Was, we had no timing. We had, we had no time. Nothing. It was one of those moments when Zach's like, we're going to try stuff. And we're like, huh? <laughs> and then we just like, we didn't even know what we're trying. But yeah. we're going to have wine and cheese at the end. So no matter how bad it was, we were going to feed and that, give that'll people. Get people out of, in New York, that'll get people out of the, their apartment it in will. February. Yeah, it's, it's, wine it sure and cheese. Did. Yeah. 
Well, we brought so we brought people from um, Arts Brookfield who were just so so supportive, yeah. and we we had all of that installation stuff from from uh, series so of reveals. So, brought... so we just took all that stuff and made a mock. Then she fell. And were people um, were were people free to roam, or were they brought from? They were. No, they were. Was, they were tracked. It was like more curated. Yeah. We were curating. We were kind of messy. Yeah. And I feel like I feel like we tried something completely different every single time. Because we, we just were throwing out ideas of like, what happens if we do this? What happens if we try this? How did you? And so coordinate. We would get ready, and Zach would say, "Okay, now instead of doing this like you did last time, you're gonna wait." finish do another scene like that and then you're going to come out and get your person from here instead of over there and you'd be like um okay i think and then you do it and then at the end they'd be like so you forgot about that person for 20 minutes (laughs) and (laughs) they just stood there and then did nothing and then would you uh debrief with the audience afterwards and say what was your so that was the wine and cheese we would sit with them and and a lot of these people were friends they Mm -hmm. were all other theater directors and we just wrote everything they said like what did you like? What did, what how did this feel? What what were the things that were working? Do you still have working? all those documents? I don't know. I'm sure I still have mine. I was Do you have yours? <laughs> I bet Zach has them. I know we had like just tons and tons mm-hmm. of material, and I remember that we were doing kind of like I know I was playing a chess game on the tea table with different like wine glasses and jelly beans, and we were cooking mushrooms on a hot plate, <laughs> and oh, I, I mean there was there was so every idea we ever had, we were throwing out everything. Um, and I was like, you know, telling people the bed. I don't think it was a bedtime story. I think it was, yeah, it was what would eventually become the bedtime story. Oh, and we were dry, uh, We were walking people Who with blindfolds. Who wrote the bedtime story? Zach did. Zach did. Because yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've been to Then She Fell twice, mm-hmm. and after the bedtime story, both times I'm like, I have to remember this. Yeah. I have to remember this. And the moment I walk out the front door, I don't. I'm like, I don't even know. Oh, I just remember right. it was. Lovely. It's yeah. He, well, it's interesting. We, it ties in with the story. Huh? Uh-huh. It does. Uh, not, yes. Not remembering it. <laughs> yeah. That's funny because I still it. wait. Oh, I just got the edges of it, and then it went away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We we had um. I remember when he made that at the art mill because we'd had many conversations about um, had this idea about like well you know the the white queen there isn't like I said she's an old woman with a scarf there's not a lot going on with the white queen but I wanted to be her and that was it like, it's like if I'm going to be in this show we're going to find me a character um, so like, uh, so so one thing I was very fascinated was this that she lives backwards and, mm-hmm. and that she so so then I can, kind of came to Zach was like you know what happens if if you live backwards, how do you fall in love backwards? Like, if you're going in this direction and your lover's going in that direction, how do you... Right, I'm going to make you stop now. I'm going to make you stop. Okay. I'm going to make you stop. So, what... I'm going to ask you one more question, and then, and then, because it's almost 4.30 now. Um, so, I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, Now there's also the pressure on this question. So, what was what, what was the big takeaway from these these wine and cheese experiments, or was there, or what were you sort of left with for the next step? I, I think that was the that was all the intake. I, I feel think, like we yeah. we stepped away from that, and between that and the haunted house, we knew that one thing that was clear to me in the haunted house was that having that experience with. A performer was amazing. Mm. Sometimes having it with other people killed it. Like you know, if you mm. were watching something and then suddenly somebody, and of course people were dressed up in those ridiculous costumes, and then they enter the scene, they would kind of like 
the world bleed would kind of like be a record scratching <laughs> and that it became really clear that if you're going to have an intimate experience with a performer it needs to somehow be protected you can't it can't be interrupted it has to be mm. really um, mm-hmm. really well crafted so that 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 it has that that so resonant, it feels safe. Like, yeah it feels safe and it, it resonates and it feels like it's really for you um, so that was the takeaway from from the haunted house of like well you know it was great to have these little fleeting moments with audience members, but could they be longer? And could we still have those like one-on-one or two, two audience, mm-hmm. two performer, or, or even a smaller group or something? Like, could we, could we get that? And then I feel like the takeaway, I'm not sure what, if we had landed on a very low audience number, but we only had eight in mm-hmm. those showings. And I think that we were realizing that you could get a lot of... Um, mileage and all of your goals if you didn't have very many audience members yeah that um that that was kind of that's the very key. special yeah it that was that was something that i think really was a takeaway um, i think it was also um a chance for us to really play around with these characters because we had um we we already understood some things about them but we didn't know really who we wanted to present them as to audience mm-hmm. And so we were able to sort of like, I remember playing with the first hat shop idea, like, oh, well, this is a hatter. Obviously, she's going to make a hat. Like, this is a thing that she does for a living. Um, and so, like, how did that feel in the room with the audience? Did it, where did I want that scene to go? And and how did I, like, embody this character who speaks so, um, with, with, uh, just so differently than, than most people. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you embody that and also improvise if you need to? How do you respond to the audience and still stay in this, in the world of this character? And so I think we we learned a lot about what we wanted to present. Um, you know, I think for me, I, I realized how easy it would be to present my character as somebody who is kooky. Because like <laughs> everybody, everybody presents the Hatter as just like, she's crazy. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, that was something I deeply wanted to stay away from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that those showings were where yeah. that came together for me. I, I, you were making hats during those showings, right? Because I remember we had sort of all these crazy things <laughs> and ribbon. If by making hats, you mean taking like, a bolt of fabric, wrapping it around <laughs> someone's head, and then tying it. <laughs> Done. <laughs> chess in two different places and I had um, I I was you know that sort of became a scene that wasn't actually a white queen scene at all but that mm-hmm. was sort of the beginning of a different scene um, but I was playing the chess game and telling the story with with people and I remember just the thinking to myself boy when if we're gonna do this we really have to know what we're doing because <laughs> this is not easy improvising for one person right here with this chess game and like you know just realizing how how also that you kind of are very responsible for that person. You have to take care of mm-hmm. them, and you have to, if you're going to bring them on this journey, you've got to lead them. You can't just abandon them. Um, so that was something I think I remember figuring out was just how to really hand people off carefully and, and realizing, okay, we we have to really think about that. Yeah. The journey. We also have to think about the content in the scenes because that really needs to be solid and and well thought out mm-hmm. and yeah. we have to earn the ability to do things with audience and that's something that I think third rail we think about all the time is that you know I think I I found myself saying to a class once 
immersive theater is not just bringing the audience into the world and getting to do whatever you want to them. <laughs> like, it, you have to have a reason, and mm. you can't just play with people or make them do things for the sake of making them do things because it doesn't necessarily feel very good to the audience, mm-hmm. and they can, they can actually shut down. And the idea is to fold them into the world and make them feel like they're making choices and that they, mm. they want... They are a part of it, but that they don't necessarily have to perform or have to play a role or have to know what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Because if they're thinking about having to do any of those things, they can't possibly enjoy the performance and become a part of it because mm-hmm. they're so busy trying to figure out what they're supposed to do mm-hmm. that they're preoccupied. So, so I think that was something I learned about. Like if you if you want to play chess with people, well, what if they don't play chess? Well, then you've got to reroute yeah. because mm-hmm. because then there has to be another choice that still the scene has to happen you can't just stop and you have to find a way to not make them feel bad for not knowing how to play chess but to still like have the scene play out and get the message across and the experience to like sort of have a a nice um a nice end even Mm -hmm. wherever the audience is and whatever they bring to it and you have to earn their trust and you have to keep Mm -hmm. their trust Mm -hmm. those are both they're two different things and they're both really important Mm -hmm. Good. Well, I think this is maybe a really nice place to stop. Um, thank you so much. This is really wonderful oh, to so hear welcome. all of this stuff. Yeah, thank you um, for being for, for having us. Oh, you're welcome. Um, and I hope maybe in a few weeks or four weeks or something we can meet up again um, and talk more about, like, actually talk about <laughs> then she fell, um, okay. and then pair yeah, that up sure. with talking about about sure. Grand Paradise. Yeah, I love that. Awesome. Cool. Great. Well, great. thank you very much, Janine and Elizabeth. Thank you, Zay. Thanks, right. Zay. Uh, this is Zay <laughs> signing off. Noah, take over. <laughs> All right. I just want to thank Zay again for being our point man on this and the folks at Third Rail Projects for letting us do the show right in one of their own spaces. If you want to get more information about Third Rail Projects, that's thirdrailprojects.com. If you want to get tickets to The Grand Paradise or see some more information about it, you can go to thegrandparadise.com. Uh, I know I did that, and I'll be checking the show out in April. I am stoked. Um, Okay, sorry, enough about me. Uh, Hey, other ways you can connect with us. You can find Zay on Twitter. He's at Zay Amsbury. Uh, You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Noah J. Nelson. You can find No Persinium on Twitter, at No Persinium. Shock. The Medium collection is medium.com slash no-persinium. The Patreon, which is what you give money to to make this show even better and to maybe get us to the point where we can pay writers uh, to write for us in cities that we don't have uh, allies in so far, that is patreon.com slash nopersinium. If you want to tell us about your show, if you want to tell us about a show you discovered, if you want to give us hints and tips, that's uh, something we rely upon to make the newsletter better for everybody. This is a team effort, guys. Uh, that is no underscore proscenium at outlook.com. That's all the major ways you get to us. Uh, Facebook.com slash no proscenium. There's also that. That's all the usual stuff. Uh, this has been a really long one. Uh, it's a really busy day and uh, I'm not going to dilly dally anymore. But if you open your eyes and pay attention and keep looking out there in the world, uh, you might catch me at Rough Sleeper here in LA. You might catch me at the Grand Paradise uh, in a few weeks. Maybe you're listening to this in a few weeks and you're like, oh, I'll, I'll go hunt that guy down. 
Uh, and there's going to be a lot more shows. And we're going to have another one next week for certain. We got that lined up. Uh, are we talking with the creator of And the Drum? I think we are. Uh, and then I'm going to be in the Bay Area for a couple of weeks. So I think we're going to have a couple of Bay Area based episodes. Lots of fun. And then I'll be in New York for a week. And uh, I think we're going to have like more New York based episodes than usual. Ah, it's an exciting year. All right. Until next time, I'll see you at the show.